0: Welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Today, this is the first episode of 2024, or at least the first that we've recorded. It remains to be seen whether that's the order in which it comes out. Either way, I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Philip Newell, a lecturer in psychological science at the University of Bristol, a member of the Advisory Board for Safer Gambling that advises the GB Regulator or the Gambling Commission, speaking here in an independent capacity, of course. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the joint winner of the Society for the Study of Addiction's Impact Prize in 2023. Uh, Philip, welcome to Addiction Audio. Hi, Rob. How are you doing today? (laughs) Very well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Philip, you're here to talk about um, a letter that you wrote to uh, addiction uh, titled No Evidence of Harm. Uh, in single quotation marks, implies no evidence of safety, framing the lack of causal evidence in gambling advertising research. Um, Now, can you tell us, uh, obviously you've done a lot of research in this area, can you tell us uh, briefly about current gambling advertising regulations and and what it was about them that compelled you to write this letter?
1: Sure, of course, Rob. So I would say that this letter is really... um... accumulation of frustrations over a number of years um which yeah expressed in a 500 word format for for the journal um but in brief i would say that in the uk gambling advertising is something that's really that really came out of nowhere and now it can be incredibly prevalent uh, in the uk so it really started. The piece of legislation that really led to gambling advertising in the UK is the 2005 Gambling Act Um, and that was that came into force in 2007. Before that we actually had very little gambling advertising at all in the UK which could be um, hard for some of us to imagine nowadays you know that you have bingo adverts on the TV all the time and um, so many different gambling logos shown around sport. Uh, Me myself I first became aware of gambling advertising. I, I remember it really sort of like around the year 2011. Um, I remember uh, seeing it shown in breaks on televised football matches. Um, I also remember dying to see a lot of gambling advertising in bookie shop windows. So in the UK, there's a lot of bookmakers on the high street uh, where people can go in to gamble. Back before the Gambling Act came into force, you know, these bookmakers, they were sort of made to be as unappetizing as possible, right, like you couldn't see in at all and they weren't allowed to have any advertising in the windows. And that is something that changed with the Gambling Act. And so, yeah, I um, was living in a part of South London at the time, and there were a lot of bookmakers on my high street, and I remember going and um, seeing them every day as I just walked to the shops and, uh, yeah, I guess the really interesting thing for me there was just every day, you know, there'd be different football matches and they'd be showing different bets specific to each football match of that day. And so even though, you know, there are very different teams playing, I, fu- I first started to notice particular patterns in in the adverts that they showed. Um, and that's something that's led to a lot of my research in the years since.
0: Yeah, I, I've heard you speak on this uh, a couple of times. Um but you talk about different types of bet being more compelling than others. And this often kind of frames the kinds of bets that are, that are advertised as, as being available. Can you describe a little bit about why one type of bet would be more compelling or, or, or more um, set up for advertising than, than others?
1: Sure. Um, maybe, maybe I'll just try and step back a little bit. Um, so the Gambling Act that came in that led to Gambling Advertising, was very much based on this um, free market economic ideology, right? So the idea is that um, by allowing firms to advertise, you're sort of increasing the competition between firms, right? And that's providing the consumer, which in this case would be the gambler, um, with more options that they can choose between, right? And so the more that firms are competing against one another to get, um, The customer's business right because the customer is assumed to have free choice here it can just choose whatever offer is is best out of the ones that are being shown to them um that this is going to lead to more and more competition um between the firms in this case the bookmakers right and that competition is going to lead to um either reductions in price or improvements in quality of the product that's being advertised and this is going to benefit the consumer, the gambler in this instance, right? That's the sort of economic theory ideology. Um, But this really goes wrong in gambling, right? Um, I guess one of the main reasons that it goes wrong is that there's um, sort of a very big disconnect between the reason why people say that they gamble and the outcomes that they actually get, right? Um, For a sort of Consumers to be rational, like you have to be um, doing things in a way that will achieve your aims, right? (laughs) Um, And the reason why gamblers are irrational, or many of them are, is that um, you know the the gambling commission will ask uh, people why they gamble each year in a survey, right? And the the, the most common reasons that people give for why they gamble is that they gamble to win that they gamble to win um, life-changingly large amounts of money, right? Uh, However, the statistics that come from gambling operators show the vast majority of people lose. Um, There was one chief executive of a gambling company who said in a government select committee that actually the statistics for their gambling company were that 99% of their customers lose, right? So there's a bit of a disconnect here. Um, And if you think about... Sort of gambling advertising more specifically there's also another disconnect there in the um so gambling is something what economists call a zero-sum game right so gamblers obviously want to make money but gambling operators bookmakers also want to make money and uh this game is zero-sum because um basically any money that one of them wins, the other loses, right? Like no new money is created in gambling. It's just moved around. Um, And so when that, you know, in gambling advertising operators uh, or bookmakers, you know, they're they're sort of, um, they're wanting to sort of advertise either bets or um, offers on their bets uh, that sound like a really good deal, right? Like, you know, You know, that's the way to create a persuasive marketing offer, I guess, right? Like it has to sound like a great deal in order to get people to go into the bookmaker or download the app to start betting. However, like what would actually happen here if the deals that they advertised were actually great, right? (laughs) Like if they were offering bets that were generally great and that would make people loads of money if they bet on them. (laughs) And the bookmakers would become bust very very quickly right um because these great deals like people would basically like if gamblers were rational right like they would just come in they would see a great deal they would bet just on that great deal and then they would leave and never come back right so um that sort of like advertising of genuine good deals in gambling advertising like it, it fundamentally can't work for those economic reasons. Um, so the the only window of possibility in gambling advertising really is that so basically they can't be good deals, right? <laughs> but they have to seem to be good deals in order for people to come in and make bets. If the bets were obviously bad deals, right? Then people would walk by, see, oh, well, that's a rubbish bet. Why would I want to bet on that? Mm. And they just keep on walking, right? So this is the hidden psychological reality in gambling advertising. In the, fundamentally, it can't be a good deal, but it has to appear to be. Um, And the patterns that I found, they continue to work essentially every time I've ever seen gambling advertising Uh, where they're showing you the odds on certain bets that you can choose right so this is um, what a type of advertising that I would call odds advertising Um, the other most and it's one of the two most common forms of gambling advertising the other most common form is called financial inducements right so a financial inducement is like any time they're sort of offering you a bonus or like you know higher odds on your bet you know like say they'll They'll, they'll turn a, a bet that you know might have turned £10 into £20. If it was successful, they might turn that into £40 instead, right? So higher odds on your bet to make the offer seem very compelling. Um with financial inducements, what they generally do is they have lots of really complicated terms and conditions, right? Um, which won't be shown as prominently as the amount of money you can get in brief with financial inducements um the main thing that they make you do is they make you gamble for a long time afterwards um to make the bonus money that they're giving you uh redeemable and basically what they do is that they make it so the implied losses from that additional gambling more than offsets um the bonus that you got from the inducement but yeah that's The inducement category, odds advertising is probably what I've done the more research on uh, over the years. And yeah, this is is where the sort of like core fundamental psychological pattern um, has really stayed the same uh, since I first started seeing the adverts around 2011. I collected data for my first empirical study in 2014, which was published the next year. Um, I've continued to do follow up. Studies looking at the content of odds advertising since then always see the same the same fundamental patterns um and in in brief what they do if we take say betting in football you'll have like two teams playing so there's like lots of different bets that you can make in, in any specific football match um back in the day you know you'd have to bet on one of the teams to win right so with that kind of a bet say you've got manchester united playing manchester city there's only really sort of three fundamental outcomes here either manchester united win manchester city win or there's a draw right there's not a lot of complexity there something that people can understand quite easily um, and there's not that much sort of scope there um, so what they do instead. Um, instead of offering those very simple bets that people can understand quite well um, is they offer bets on much more specific events um, which has various um, advantages for them so the first advantage um, is that they can make the sort of like the, the potential odds on the bet much longer right so uh, a long odds bet is essentially one where um the potential payout compared to the amount of money that you're putting putting down it is is much bigger right so um this is something that's attracted to gamblers um so you know uh say we're betting a pound each each time a relatively short odds bet we'll be turning that one pound into two pounds if it's successful but then um by advertising bets on more specific events, they're able to offer longer odds, such as turning that one pound into potential five, ten, even a hundred pounds. Um, and this is something—the first thing that's really um, quite attractive to gamblers, um, because you know, the more you can win from that one pound, the easier it is to just imagine making uh, that life-changing amount of money. Um, But the way that they create these long odds bets is by getting people, um, by advertising bets on combinations of very specific events. So the thing is, in football and other sports, there's lots of ways that you can make long odds bets that people will not be fooled by. An example of this would be, um, say, if you've got, again, Manchester City playing, but playing against um, a very bad team right um it's not easy to imagine that bad team winning um even though the bet will have long odds if it it could potentially come off um and what they do instead is they um advertise bets which are on combinations of of events that are in, in themselves things that football fans can imagine happening right so they'll get that bet on the favourite team, Manchester City, that's easy easy to imagine them winning. Um, but the bet won't be on them winning. It will be them winning, um, say, by a very specific scoreline, such as um, seeing them winning by four goals to one, right? Um, and the thing here is that for the better, it's it's very easy to imagine a good team winning by a high scoreline like 4-1. Four, four However, um, the thing is they, they keep on adding more and more things into the bet to sort of make the, the odds longer and longer. So oftentimes, um, and I've actually seen this over time, uh, how advertised bets sort of have become uh, more complicated over time. So they'll try and add in other things that are themselves also plausible, easy to imagine happening. So say they'll um they'll take a very famous player from that team manchester city uh like erling Haaland is is their top goal scorer at the the moment and the bet will combine these additional features so it'll be say erling Haaland to score the first goal and manchester city to to win by four goals to one um they'll also oftentimes add in other things like a specific player to get a yellow card um Maybe both teams to score, um, and maybe the goals to be scored in the, in the first half or something like that. They'll create more and more events, um, which uh, basically that makes the the odds that they op- they're able to offer um, these long odds, like you know, turning one pound into twenty five pounds, fifty pounds, whatever, right? So they you know they've created bets that got a high potential win and and sort of really feel like. They're also likely to happen, right? Um, because yeah. they combine all of these individual events that appear plausible um, to happen.
0: So, so as a, as a combination, it's as likely as as Macclesfield FC uh, beating Manchester, but it just looks more plausible because all the elements of it uh, are individually plausible.
1: Yeah, exactly, and um, that's a that's the sort of second side of this research that i've done so i've done a lot of research um also looking at the odds to see how fair these odds are and there's various different ways you can calculate this um but in one of my studies which used used real bets uh that people were inquiring about on the social media platform formerly known as twitter and i showed that actually if people had put these bets on right and um you know, tried to make money, uh, then they would have lost 40% of all the money that they bet, which is actually around 10, 10 times higher um, than the amount that you would lose on average when making these sort of like much simpler football bets, like betting on Manchester City to, to win. So, you know, that, that it's really got the two sides of the coin there in that it appears really attractive, um, but actually... Um, it's the bookmaker that, that's really winning the most, and that's um, yeah, that's that's the underlying psychology in um, how how they're able to offer things that seem good but are actually really profitable for them.
0: And so, with, with this letter, um, you're focusing on on uh, the evidence around uh, gambling, gambling harm, and gambling advertising, which again is is a relatively new study of a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, and one of the comments I think came from um, the UK Minister for Sport Gambling Civil Society, saying that we've very much gone into the evidence, and there's little evidence that exposure to advertising alone causes people to em- enter into gambling harm. So, so you're basically, saying there's nothing to suggest that this kind of advertising would lead to gambling harms. Um, and what's what's your kind of view on that? And and, and is that what kind of prompted you to uh, to write this letter?
1: Um, yeah, I mean the letter is really just uh, a consequence of my frustration um, and my frustration comes I guess from uh, the lack of tools that the research community has and like our, our voices just get heard a lot less than the gambling operators when it comes to um, legislation around gambling. So so basically the issue in the letter is that there's different types of research that you can do methodologically. So I've given you this sort of conceptual argument of why gambling advertising is fundamentally exploitative and shown examples um, of how that exploitation works out. And the issue is that um, Basically, when it comes to policy, um, the gambling industry has hoodwinked policymakers by basically setting an impossible standard, right? So what they talk about is that they say there's no causal evidence that gambling advertising leads to harm. And the reason that's frustrating is because causal evidence is very different from just evidence in general, Mm -hmm. right? So causal evidence, you can really only generate it via an experiment would be the cleanest, right? Um, So, you know, you create some scenario where you expose one group to a stimuli and the other group not to the stimuli and you observe their outcomes over time to see what is the causal effect of the stimuli. And the reason this is very frustrating uh, for researchers is because there's absolutely no way we can ethically do this experiment, right? There's no way I can get like some group <laughs> of people in the UK just to hide them off from like the rest <laughs> of <laughs> the rest of the country, right? Yeah. And show one of them loads and loads of gambling adverts and like completely prevents the other group from seeing any gambling adverts whatsoever. And then observe the extent to which these two groups experience gambling related harm, right, um, over a period of time, right, because um, obviously, like just seeing one gambling advert, it's it's very unlikely to have any effect, right. And these effects are things that we think emerge over years and years of exposure to, um, you know, hundreds or even uh, thousands of gambling ad- adverts and logos at the time. Um, I've, I've got a, a study from last year that's counting up those um, gambling logo, you know, the number of gambling logos that you see in an individual football match and um, in addition to the to the um, adverts and commercial breaks, you know, you can see logos just in the billboards around the pitch um, up to thousands of times uh, in a match right and you um, yeah there's just absolutely no way i could ever like create some control of experimental idealized laboratory conditions to show conclusively 100 <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, percent accuracy that gambling advertising is leading leading to harm the methods that we have as researchers are of course for those ethical reasons more circumstantial and you know we have to Look at all different types of things. So in addition to looking at gambling advertising content, you know, we'll count up the number of gambling adverts that people are exposed to. You can interview gamblers like people who have experienced harm and ask them about, you know, what what their perceptions of how gambling advertising has affected them. And all of the research that has been done, because it's possible to ethically do you know, it's all showing various warning lights, right? Basically, within the confines of what it can show, it's showing that things are are bad <laughs> uh, and very much worth some consideration. Um, however, as researchers, as scientists, right, we always have to like write limitation sections to our papers and always say. Of course, these results are limited by the fact that, you know, it's just correlational, like we're not able to track exactly like exposure to different types of gambling adverts and things like that, right? Like as researchers, we always have to be cautious and state limitations and the gambling industry in its sort of very good tactical argumentation has take has like really grabbed on to these limitations that we have to acknowledge, and it's putting us putting a um, an impossible standard that the research community can't meet, which is very much where the letter came from, um, and just trying to describe this frustrating state of affairs in five hundred words.
0: And and on that, I mean, I think one of the impressive things about uh, about this letter about these kinds of letters is is where you, you get a, a kind of broad agreement from the research community. Now, you had 50, uh, 50 authors, 50 signatories to this letter. Um, what was that like? Just from an administrative perspective, how how was it corralling 50 uh, gambling researchers, academics into agreeing on 500 words um, to, to summarise the frustrations in this area? Uh,
1: yeah, um, I mean, that was a... I, I think another layer to my whole <laughs> my whole frustrations in, in, in this topic. Uh, definitely added a, a, new, a new flavor to it all last year. Uh, so it all came about from the international think tank for gambling, uh, which happened in June of last year in London. Um, I, I was asked to give a brief talk there on gambling advertising. Um, and yeah, for, for my sins at some point during the two day meeting, um, t- towards the end, we were wrapping up. We were like, what can we what can we do <laughs> to get these insights from the meeting and sort of like and try and catalyze wider change? I I had my reservations, but uh, for some reason I put my hand up and said, oh, yeah, you know, um, I'm having this particular frustration at the moment about, um you know, the way the gambling industry help, help holds research to an impossible standard. Uh, you know, what about if I, you know, lead on a group letter about this? Um, and yeah, it was, um, it, it definitely, my worst fears um, uh, came true, there, I guess.
0: Did you have to make a lot of kind of concessions to get something that you agreed on or... Or did that process of having that much input help to, like, sharpen the letter in a way?
1: Um, yeah, it went it went through a few stages for sure. You know, there's a lot of academics, uh, also some, you know, like, non-academics on the letter, uh, but I guess academics themselves are sort of famous for having a lot of opinions. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I will definitely blame myself a little bit in the, um, you know, I knew... I was writing for a specific format, a letter, which is meant to be really quite short. Um, I wrote an initial draft, which is under the 500 word uh, limit. And yeah, I, 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 I do regret I wasn't sort of like I did say, but a little bit too discreetly that 500 words was the limit. Mm. Um, and so I sent this version out in a collaborative document that people could add to and um, yeah I I did have like a moment of horror when I saw that the document had made it to about 1,500 words long (laughs) so yeah it was definitely a process to try and get those rich insights into um, the shorter format that we ended up with yeah definitely uh, my collaborators helped with that a lot um, in particular My frequent collaborator, Jamie Torrance, uh, who's the first author on that gambling logo counting study that I mentioned um, from last year. He was particularly helpful. Um, But yeah, just getting that initial draft in the the appropriate length was definitely an issue. Uh, There were also a lot more issues after that. You know, a lot of issues uh, with the journal copy editor and... A very important thing in gambling research is the disclosure of potential conflicts of interest.
0: It's longer than the letter.
1: Yeah, those conflicts were, I think, initially completely left off. And so you had to ask for them to be included. And basically each time a new version of the letter was created, there would be some, of course, like, like mistakes creep in. But then, you know someone would spot something and then someone else had a follow on. Um, yeah, it, on a per word basis, it was definitely one of the most challenging pieces of work I've been involved in. But um, also, you know, um, immensely gratifying to be um, at the end of the day on a byline with so many of my um, research heroes, you know, um, it's not just uh, any any old 50 people, um, you know, there's a a number of um, very close collaborators and other people whose work in the field that I've admired for a number of years.
0: Uh, absolutely, and and what would you what would you like to see uh, happen next in the UK around uh, particularly and specifically around gambling advertising regulations? What do you think the next steps should be?
1: Yeah, so in the UK, we had a government white paper published last year, which we were anticipating for a long time, announcing how the government intends to regulate gambling differently we were very frustrated there was no direct action on gambling advertising and um, basically one of the reasons they cited was just before the the white paper was published the top men's professional football league the premier league they announced some self-regulation that from I think 2026 onwards um, I forget the exact year they're going to remove the gambling logos shown on the front of the shirts right and this is an issue because like on average in a given season about eight out of 20 of the clubs in the men's premier league will have gambling logos on the front of their shirts and the people in the government who drafted the white paper basically they were like well this is great we've solved the problem of gambling advertising in sport however the um, the the paper that I mentioned earlier the one uh, done by collaborator Jamie Torrance Uh, we not only counted the logos um, in an average men's Premier League football match, but we also counted the location of these logos. We found that if you watch the match, first you see on average thousands of logos, uh, but only 7% of these thousands of logos are shown on the front of the shirts. Many more logos are shown on billboards around the pitch and also other places. So, they, they still allow gambling logos on the sleeves of the shirts um, and they can be seen all around the stadium nowadays. Um, and yeah, the issue here is um, the, you know, the, the the government saw this bit of self-regulation and they're like, "Great, this has solved the problem. We don't have to do anything. Um, so this study in particular, uh, uh, along with the letter, I hope there'll be impetus that you know, the, the government will finally realise that um, there's a need to do more here.
0: Absolutely. It, it, it's a fascinating time for, for gambling research, uh, particularly in gambling advertising. Uh, Dr Philip Newell, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Rob.